welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this week's episode, I'll be talking with someone who many of you have suggested that I get on the podcast, Professor Samuel Moyne. It was a real pleasure to have him on, and those were great suggestions. What we talked about is the role of claims about rights in the creation of welfare states in the 40s and 50s, and then also in the libertarian counter-revolution in the 70s and 80s. So this is definitely more a conversation about rights in their role in contemporary political ideologies, rather than a more philosophical discussion about the sort of nature and um, scope of rights. If this type of conversation is interesting to you, I'll make a couple of recommendations for other stuff you can check out just before we get started. So I reference a solo series I did, that's my Libertarianism series, and it's just titled Libertarianism is the first episode. But it's actually more of a story of the competition between um, Libertarianism and a more progressive liberalism that occurs from roughly 1850 to 1950. So that's in my past episode. So if you're interested in more of like my opinion, um, you know, please do go back and check that out. Um, also, of course, I would uh, strongly recommend Professor Moyne's book that we discussed in this episode, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And that's something I definitely learned a lot from. And I'll also say Professor Moyne has done a lot of other podcasts, so I listened to a few of his other interviews, and I would definitely recommend you go check those out if you just search his name plus podcast. You'll find, like, a whole bunch of stuff he's done, and I think they're definitely worth a listen as well, if you find this interesting. The other thing I'll mention is if you want to hear some discussion of rights from a more philosophical point of view. Someone I mention in this episode, who I've done a lot of interviews with, um, Cecile Farb, who was actually the first ever interviewee of this podcast and has come back on since then. So she's someone who uses rights claims um, and makes them in service of a left-wing egalitarian vision. So I sort of briefly mention that I think a proper philosophical understanding of rights doesn't lead to libertarianism. I think it's sort of the logical implications of that ethical foundation lead to a more redistributist, um, liberal, or even socialist vision of the world. So I've got a bunch of episodes with Professor Farb, and if you're interested in the more philosophy side, um, those, those I think are a great place to start. She's a wonderfully clear communicator of those sorts of ideas. But yeah, let's get straight into today's episode, just as a little way of introduction. For those of you who don't know him, uh, Professor Samuel Moyne is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He received a doctorate in early modern history from the University of California, Berkeley, 
in 2000 and a law degree from Harvard University in 2001. He came to Yale from Harvard, where he was the Jeremiah Smith Jr. Professor of Law and Professor of History. Before this, he spent 13 years in the Columbia University History Department, where he was most recently the James Bryce Professor of European Legal History. His areas of interest in legal scholarship include international law, human rights, the law of war, and legal thought, both in a historical and current perspective. In intellectual history, he's worked on a diverse range of subjects, especially 20th century European moral and political theory. He's written several books in the fields of European intellectual history and human rights history, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, and edited or co-authored a number of others. His most recent books are Christian Human Rights and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, which is what we spend a lot of our time discussing in this episode. He's currently working on a new book about the origins and significance of humane war, and over the years he's written in such venues as the Boston Review, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Dissent, The Nation, The New York Republic, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. So Professor Moyne is definitely someone who is both accomplished as a scholar, but has also taken on a much more public-facing role in those articles, as well as the various interviews he's done that I've mentioned as well. Um, A lot of people, actually, not a lot, but a few people, suggested that Professor Moyne might be a good person to have on to disagree with me, because one of the things apparently my audience likes and I get requests for is to have guests on who I disagree with, because I tend to do, like, point-of-view interviews where I give my own perspective and narratives and so on. And apparently <laughs> apparently you all are a combative lot, and you like it when um, I, I contrast, shall we say, uh, views with guests. So I've had a few people, I wouldn't necessarily say hardcore conservatives, but people who are more centrist and are sort of comparatively to my political right-on, and we've had... I think some good discussions. And so people said it would be good to have someone on who you could disagree with who's to your political left, which I really like that idea of. Um, But I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, It seemed like we agreed on pretty much everything. And to the extent that we didn't, those disagreements were (laughs) very subtle or perhaps simply a matter of Professor Moyne just knowing more about a particular thinker or a bit of history than than I did. Um, So, you know, as always, I did a point of view interview where I sort of said, this is my take on this and so on. And we, you know, went back and forth and chewed over a bunch of... um, historical narratives. And yeah, it was a conversation I enjoyed a lot, and long-time listeners of the podcast will know this is just so me. I really think that, you know, what you might call, I mean, what I might call something like the study of modern political ideologies is just so interesting and important, and that, well, absolutely, we should be involved in these more Uh, pure philosophical investigations of, you know, what ought rights or freedom or justice to mean. Um, 
you know, we absolutely should be doing that. It's also so important to look at, what, regardless of what they ought to mean, what is the work that these ideas do in the world? You know, what systems of thought arise and how do they relate to one another and how do they relate to the material circumstances of the world and how are philosophers and informed and directed by those changing ideological patternings and changing material circumstances. Um, this is really just a set of areas of investigation that I think are so fascinating and are probably somewhat neglected by this field. So I'm always eager to discuss them and I've been incredibly privileged in terms of the amazing and accomplished people that I've been fortunate enough to be able to spend some time uh, talking about them with. And um, yeah, as always, I hope you um, get as much out of these conversations as I do. So yeah, let's leave that as introduction and get straight to it. As always, this podcast goes out for free and advertisement-free, and all of our costs are covered by listeners voluntarily supporting on whatever level is right for them. So if you'd like to be a part of that, please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast and i've been recommending but it is just a suggestion um if this episode is worth a couple of bucks to you two dollars you know that seems like you know a great thing to to chip in if you're not able to help monetarily but still want to support the podcast um just simple stuff like sharing it on social media or recommending it to friends are really great ways to help us continue to build our audience and as always, I am incredibly grateful for everyone who does those things. And yeah, with the introduction and my plug for support done, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Samuel Moyne. joined today by Professor Samuel Moyne. Professor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So just to get started, um, how do you describe what you do? What issues do you think and write and teach about and what interests you? So I, I think of myself as, as, a, as an intellectual historian and I, I trained to think about modern European thought and it's its history, but subsequently I've I've gotten into more um, international history, and um, I've always had kind of a, an interest in um, the history of moral philosophy more generally. So um, there's a chapter in the book we're going to discuss about global justice theory, which actually emerged as a separate project, but. Um, you know, I teach law these days, and my interests are eclectic and mostly historical. 
could you talk about your sort of like development going forward into writing this book? Because this didn't come out of nowhere, right? This is almost like Correct. A... yeah. Go ahead. Correct. Well, so I, you know, I wrote a, a couple of prior books. One major book called The Last Utopia uh, on human rights and where they came from, um, and uh, I wrote that prior book in 2008-9, which was right at the moment of the financial crisis. But my concerns were really more um, about kind of thinking through my own experiences as a youth in the 1990s and um, the idea that um, human rights um, promotion internationally were the wave of the future and especially kind of um, one of the, the kind of pole stars of American foreign policy. But I had not thought as much or enough about um, human rights and distributive justice. And in the decade or so that intervened before I wrote Not Enough, the kind of cascading effects of um, kind of economic uh, matters in general was was so manifest that I I decided I would rewrite my book and in particular that led me to focus a lot more on earlier phases um, in history than I had before um, while still um, claiming that something very important happened in the 1970s that led to our particular human rights culture. I want to spend quite a bit of time, or you know, quite a bit of this interview on the 1970s bit, but let's build up to there. I have just a straight philosophy question to get started with, though. To begin with, do you have a particular, like, conception or definition or framework for thinking about what rights are? Because if I read you correctly, you're not particularly wedded or, like, feeling the need to fight on behalf of any particular meta-ethical underpinning to rights. You almost treat it more just like a discourse, a rhetoric, something that can be competed over in the case of, say, the orthodox Marxist critique of rights, or competed within. People can say human rights mean we need to respect property, or, you know, we need to have higher welfare, or what have you, and you're more in, you're, you're primarily interested in where, where rights came from historically and what work they're doing in the world as a rhetoric than in the sort of deep philosophical underpinnings. That's, that's totally correct, and, and it fits my training um, to, to kind of think historically rather than philosophically. I do think, I mean, I've been involved in lots of debates, um, with philosophers whose, um, concerns say to, um, think about human rights in a so-called orthodox or revisionist way, or it by thinking that they should track, um, our, our moral entitlements and duties or ought to be freestanding, I've found um, interesting, but um, not not close enough to um, taking seriously the role that human rights have played in in international political discourse, not least in producing all of this philosophical work lately. So, you know, to the best of my limited knowledge, there there were no fancy theories of human rights uh, in 
in not just in English, but in general, um, that were that popular in philosophy between approximately the 1790s and the 1970s. Um, if anything, philosophers uh, spent their time disdaining human rights. Uh, and so I, I, I like to think of philosophers as trend followers um, and to try to understand that they're people too living in the history that the rest of us are ha having to inhabit. And it turns out in a very short order, we can see how their claims to transcend setting to um, reach any kind of, you know, context independent truth claims approves very limited and not least in their enthusiasm for rights uh, and particular groundings for them. I've always approached them that way, even when talking moral philosophy, is it's just like, you know, I have discussions with sort of quite deontological moral philosophers who really ground themselves in rights as like the total framework for everything, which I don't, but like I remember us having a conversation with um, Cecile Fab, who's very, very good, quite left-wing political philosopher, and I just sort of thought, you know, for the purposes of this, I'm going to talk as if I'm a rights theorist, you know? But it wasn't necessarily me accepting some deep underpinning, it's just that's the rules of the language game we're engaging in, you know? Absolutely. That that makes considerable sense. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not dis depreciating the philosophical enterprise, and I have a lot of admiration for people doing it, but I, I, I often have wanted philosophers to think more carefully about how they fit within um, or are subject to different historical forces than, and may turn out to be much more parochial than they realize. Of course, that's true of me as well. Yes. Um, I think when you sort of point out that someone else is situated within history, you have to include yourself in that. Um, <laughs> moving, moving to the book then, not enough. You start this with um, the creation, or the, the close to the beginning is the story of the creation of um, welfare states. So I actually spent a little bit of time on this, particularly the um, Attlee government in the UK from 45 to, was it, 51? Um, tell me if you agree. I think you will, but tell me if you agree. One of the things that struck me was the degree of ideological consensus around what is seemingly a very radical project in terms of, like, the total nationalisation of healthcare. Um, so on and so forth, in that you had obviously hardline socialists and trade unionists within the Labour Party movement who supported it, but there was also a strong strain of quite liberal thought that processed this. The Beveridge Report keeps on talking about individual freedoms, which seems like quite a right-wing phrase to us, but it was the freedom from want, the freedom for security, the freedom of economic standing, stuff like that. So a very liberal foundation for it, and then even on the right... You had conservatives and even sort of more unpleasant fascistic types who saw in it a project of national unity, of social solidarity, of um, nationalism, and of country. Um, and the sort of morals I drew, drew from that were twofold, one of which is that decisive changes are possible and coalitions that seem implausible can occur. And of course, there were limitations, as you point out. It didn't extend to 
colonial subjects and so on. But the other's more pessimistic, which is people agreed with something, but they couldn't agree why they agreed to it. They agreed to a thing, but not what the thing was doing. And so those consensuses are never permanent and are always liable to fall apart as the circumstances of the world change. That's the big stories I took away from that period, and I'll put those back to you. Do you think I got that right? And if, you know, if not, what would you build on it? You know, that sounds completely uh, accurate to, you know, to my understanding, uh, and it may be generalizable far beyond that case um, since... It, it seems like it, it, when it comes to government policy, we're always going to find, at least at some level, uh, whatever consensus backs it turns out to be uh, pretty vociferous or, you know, kind of it, it involves what's been called an incompletely theorized agreement, people agreeing to the outcome, uh, although not always understanding its implications. Um, but not not at all having a common justification. I think I would add that um, the reason those years matter for the history we're talking about is that, of course, not all conservatives uh, or Tories were supportive of the Atli government uh, since they were in competition against it for power. And Winston Churchill in particular, having fallen, um, was probably the most consistent um, politician appealing to human rights. But, of course, he did so against um, the Labor Party. And people like Friedrich Hayek in the 1944 Road to Serfdom, um, it, which is mainly a brief against planning, not against a state that d does some social provision, including health care provision, um, uh, explicitly writes that if you are for human rights, you have to be very wary of the labor government. Um, so uh, what's kind of fascinating to me is that for all of Beveridge's input and the kind of general kind of transatlantic percolation of ideas of, of freedom depending on the state and social provision by it, um, you also have these dissidents who are going to, I would say, win in the long run. Um, and rights are, are they take to be their language. Uh, one of the ironies that a lot of Brits still don't know about is that Churchill was instrumental in the origins of the very European Convention on Human Rights, um, which he understood to be about the protection of property against the Labour Party at home not just communism abroad, um, even though later things flipped when uh, the, the uh, labor government much later signed the, 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 I mean, brought the Human Rights Act uh, to Britain and all the controversies that followed. Yeah, if I were drawing a really sort of long historical narrative, I would say from the 1850s, the 1860s, you have these two diverging sets of meaning com competing over what liberalism is, what freedom is, what rights are, that, you, you know, you could call progressive liberalism and libertarianism, or, you know, people use different words, but, um, and the, the libertarian strain starting with, I don't know, Herbert Spencer or something, 
that's eventually going to become Hayek, right, and get taken up by Churchill. I think I read somewhere the Tory party printed on its own ration of paper copies of Road to Serfdom. It was something they explicitly included in their platform, but it decisively loses, like, the balance of power, like, the majority ideological coalition sides with the progressive liberals, and is quite dominant and quite established for some time. But then that's all going to fall apart about 25 years later. I think that's true, although, you know, there, there are early signs, I mean, two comments on your narrative, which I think is largely right. First, if you go back into the 19th century, I think much of the scholarship would say, if we're looking for an ideological current that will lead to uh, the moment you're interested in, we look back to figures like, you know, Oxford moralist T.H. Green and idealism and the pa- as the kind of philosophical background to the path to the welfare state. And it is a form of liberalism and later new liberalism, but it's it, the place of rights in it, including in Green's own thought, you know, Green not much studied, but was one of the most influential British philosophers of all time, um, w- was very uncertain if you look at Green's writings. And then I would say, um, if you look to the immediate moment after this this decisive you know period after Attlee takes power, you do begin to have debates within labor about the nature of socialism uh, and w- what exactly um, w- w- how how market oriented and friendly um, the labor party's version of socialism. Uh, ought to be. And those are already, those debates are already happening in the 50s, so long before the 1970s. Yeah. I'm trying to think on the spot how I would define rights within that tradition. If you start that tradition with, say, Mill, as like the first time you get it, just not not wholly, but like inching towards that progressive side, rights aren't huge within Mill. Well, explicitly respected in, in, in utilitarianism. Uh, and and then on liberty, again, once again, the claim is very straightforward to that effect. So meta-ethically, they have to be totally absent from that tradition at that point. Yeah, you can get them as like a rhetorical tradition. So there's um, uh, there's Hobson and Hobhouse who both have conceptions of rights. But it's sort of like rights as like, he says, well, there's a federal unity within an organic body. It's like, it's sort of a consequence of his way of thinking. That's all green. I mean, is that green? So green is much more favorable towards rights than mill. Hmm. But he says in insofar as we posit any innate rights, we also have to acknowledge innate duties. And sadly, They've just gotten much less attention in liberal theory, and his goal is to um, make room for redistribution and especially denaturalize the property right so that whatever rights we have won't interfere with a state-imposed duties to um, you know, pay your taxes and potentially pay lots of taxes hmm. for the sake of the common good. So could we summarise and say over this period leading into the sort of Attlee government, the progressive liberals have had, let's just say, a sort of more at arm's length relationship with rights. They've been in the theory, but often in a more sort of secondary way, whereas over the same period, 
the libertarians are going to start to regard rights as absolutely central and not secondary but primary i think that that is absolutely right um if arm's length would be um maybe one end of a continuum because of course there were those who were actively hostile to rights uh i have a citation from hobson in the book um sorry hob house um to the effect that in 1900, no reformer believed that rights were useful as a, a, a progressive language. And of course, th- this is, is a liberal. Um, uh, so I would say, and, and, and the influence of Karl Marx is such, you know, in certain circles that there's outright hostility. So I completely, but, but basically, I think you're completely right in, in your setup. Okay, so we've built into the welfare state, we've got to the welfare state, and we've got this consensus. Now, we know, looking back, there's going to be this sort of empire strikes back moment coming down the line, but I guess for the people living under it at the time, it seemed stable. Now, the story you tell from there isn't going to stay confined to just the UK or you know, the US or what have you. You're going to bring in how welfare states are starting to be seen in an international context. Could you? Because I hadn't even, I'll be honest, I hadn't considered that as part of my Fair story. So, so, you know, historians now say it's precisely, you know, um, Countries with with big empires that, um, uh, however tenuous their hold on them, that um, have become wealthy enough to make a move to welfare states at home, and uh, and of course they're very exclusionary towards towards others uh, to towards you know the millions of subjects. Um, so the NHS and other you know wonderful features of your welfare state um are 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 let's they're not exactly little england their projects they're 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 british isles projects um and not british empire projects um there's of course development and the promise of developing the british empire um but rights don't figure there they let's say they figure there even less as a which of of justification or promotion than in the, 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 you know, metropolitan welfare state. So the story I tell in the book is um, that decolonization is really about the globalization of welfare um, and that it's not available within empire. Uh, and so it has to be available through the, the, the kind of reproduction of the sovereign nation state to the ends of the earth between the forties and the sixties and all of the great statesmen of that era think of themselves as founding welfare states for their citizens. Um, I also kind of try to show how, um, it's, it's these same statesmen in the global South, um, who think that, um, given that, decolonization leads to greater global inequality than had existed under empire, uh, that they ought to propose a welfare world as, as, as it's called in the sixties and seventies. And, 
and take the, uh, the, the distributive justice that's been institutionalized in various northern welfare states and try to figure out how to make global institutions that have the same function at a much larger scale. So to to track that, there then there then becomes a demand for some sort of distributive justice, not just within states, but between states. And it's in the partial rejection of that demand that we can sort of find the contours of modern thought on this as more focused on rights and welfare as opposed to equality per se. I think I think that's right. Um it it's not it's it, it the chronological proximity of these events is is pretty tantalizing working out exactly how much intention um there was in moving from um welfare at home to neoliberalism um in the face of global southern demands um, for a welfare world is it, it's harder to make that case kind of empirically, but there's no doubt that that's what happened. Um, so you have this irony that the 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 moment the global South protests that it's gotten political freedom, but global inequality has increased along the way. Um, you begin to see. Um, some some national and global governance projects that are very different than the welfare model that had been so appealing the world over after World War II. Because it is striking that about that time, within, let's make a, a sort of crude separation between popular liberalism, so like what politicians campaign on or human rights organizations or whatever, and philosophic liberalism but they both kind of drop the economics side of liberalism at around this point so popular liberalism becomes social and environmental justice both good things by the way um but then especially once you get a a decade or two later everything is sort of market-based right which is newer and then within philosophic liberalism I'm just thinking Rawls happens about this time, right? Well, Rawls is like a framework of rights that includes a concern for welfare, but doesn't include a concern for equality. There seems to be something that's happened, and whether it's philosophy introducing the sort of influencing the popular consciousness, or probably more likely the popular consciousness influencing philosophy, something's changed here. Yes. Well, so I I do completely agree with you that over time, liberalism, um, or let's call it progressivism more generally, um, especially in the North, uh, the North Atlantic, um, becomes much more interested in what I call status equality in the book rather than distributive equality. Um, Not treating people differently because of the kinds of people they are. on the basis of gender or race or disability or indigeneity um, versus class, which is, had been the central concern uh, of, of the labor politicians that uh, brought, brought the British welfare state into being. Um, now, I actually think, you know, that was a, a, a hugely innovative thing. Um, uh, I, I think it was a mistake to allow 
um, that one form of justice that was legitimate to demand status equality to compensate for an, a loss of class justice. But nonetheless, it was a good thing. Where I might differ with you slightly is in thinking about Rawls, although since my book, there's a new book um, by Katrina Forrester that everyone's talking about that that I think differs from my account and is more friendly to the way you've cast things. I, I see Rawls as um, a kind of providing a metaphysical gloss at the last minute on the welfare state, maybe even the British welfare state, because I think he was widely understood and understood himself to be an egalitarian. It's true that the difference principle is focused on the worst off, but it, 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 it's, its purpose is to justify um, departures from the default of perfect equality, which is assumed to be just unless the worst off can be made better off. Um, and the Forrester book, which is, I think, fantastic, um, kind of goes into a bit more detail than I do in arguing that, in fact, Rawls was really inspired by the right wing rather than the left wing of the Labour Party and ended up developing a kind of anti-statist form of progressivism. But I don't think even she goes so far as to say, as someone like Raymond Goyce would, that Rawls just wasn't an egalitarian of any kind or even was even a neoliberal, as Goyce outright says. So what I, I, I put things differently, uh, which is to say that you have these massive world historical shifts, but Rawls is kind of preserving, let's say, nostalgically, um, a, a version of a domestic welfare state. It's just that philosophers are arguing about it, even as it's being destroyed in real life. There's a few different narratives with Rawls. I'm not even going to say who's right here, because I'm not like Forrester. I haven't, you know, really gone into the archives of this. There's one narrative which is, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a bookend on the radicalism of the 60s. It's like, well, all these big protests didn't necessarily get us want, what we wanted. Here's sort of, I think, the spirit of what they were trying to achieve um, in a much more formal way of thinking and in a way of expressing it that appeals to, as he put it, an overlapping consensus. So maybe this is a language which will allow these um, rights concerns and these sort of egalitarian concerns to sort of uh, reach a larger audience. And if, if that was the intention, then, you know, it obviously failed, but it sort of is, is as part of a, a more hardline progressive left. Mm-hmm. The other, and actually both of these might be true at once, is yes. that it's, it's part of a shift in political theory, away from a comprehensive liberalism towards a more consensus-based liberalism. And it's sort of a subtle shift, but um, I just debated this, actually. But the idea is you shift from saying liberalism is a set of institutions that will maximise a perceived good, and that can include welfare, it can include equality or liberty or whatever, right? To saying liberalism is a set of institutions which are uniquely able to justify themselves to a range of perspectives. Now, that seems like just some philosophical whatever. My view, and this is controversial, people will disagree with me, 
is the consensus move has a conservatizing instinct to it, because you necessarily then have to start jettisoning commitments that can't be justified to someone of a comprehensively conservative worldview. And so what you end up with, and you see this in popular liberalism as well, is a slow walk back from the welfare state and a retreat to the inner citadel of rights protection and individual freedoms and status equality. I I mean, both could be true, and I'm not going to put a final judgment, but those are... I think that's fair. I mean, it's clearly more apt as a description of Rawls's second big book. I think his first, it was not clear to most readers that it wasn't a new justification for um, what he would later call a comprehensive view. Um, but it's certainly right how whatever the details, you know, of of Rawls's own case that there was a move from. Um, a sense of liberalism uh, in really T.H. Green's spirit as a new credo for a a moral community uh, of modern citizens. In this case, it was really white males, um, but nonetheless, to liberalism as a, a, a theory for the coexistence of people who may not share much in common. And the basis for redistributive solidarity in the second model was not strong enough to support uh, the endurance of welfare states. We know that because they were, uh, you know, stripped of of many of their protections. And, uh, of course, anti-immigrant politics show that the limits of solidarity have, have had very powerful consequences in a range of countries when people just aren't willing to extend the 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 perquisites even of continuously stripped down citizenship mm. to new kinds of people as they perceive them mm. it's also coterminous and again like where the chain of causality runs here is hard to unpick but it seems like there was a shift in i mean you can translate that philosophy in in and again where the chain of causality runs i don't know into a shift within popular liberalism's conception of itself, moving away from seeing itself as a competitor in the game to the referee arbitrating the rules of the game. And I think in some senses that's understandable. It's like we've got our final victory. We are, you know, sort of Whiggish view of history. We are now just, liberalism is now just the state, right? And the rules of the state. But I think in a way that ultimately proved much more fragile than it thought and not able to defend itself from the sort of contestation that it thought it had transcended. Right. That's, that sounds very plausible to me. Um, so, but then, so on the other side of this then, getting back to your book, um, if there's been a sort of retreat, at least on the economic front within liberalism, there's been a meteoric ascent on the other side within, you call it neoliberalism, I call it libertarianism, it doesn't matter, that has suddenly gone from a sort of second power status as an ideology to really just the primary power um, in a generation. 
and in a in a way that's quite I and mean, obviously in an alliance with more conservative things. How do you think about the rise of libertarianism, neoliberalism in the seventies? Well, you know, in in some ways, we we you can see it just as you know you were seeing Rawls as as a kind of outcome of the politics of the nineteen sixties because. Um, after all, the 1960s were in some ways um, visionary with respect to new claims for social justice, but they, you know, it's been argued that they also paved the way for um, individual liberation that could very easily take consumerist form. And people's lives, um, objectively changed in their relations to markets. Um, they spent a lot less time in settings like churches or clubs and more in relation to the acquisition of newfangled consumer goods and eventually on the internet. And it's hard, it's hard not to be surprised. Um, sorry, it's hard to be surprised that libertarian theory would surge having been on the defensive during the year, the great era of the welfare state after world war II. Um, I think, you know, we're really at the beginning of piecing together a story that would, um, look at who, you know, what precisely the, the deeper causation is for the rise of libertarianism, because, Ultimately, the, the post-war bargain did face a lot of um, uh, of difficulties in the 1970s, not least in the United Kingdom. Um, and Margaret Thatcher's rise and Ronald Reagan's in my country, um, not to mention the the policies of international financial institutions. Um, like the International Monetary Fund towards other countries less powerful than ours, played a huge role. Um, I, whether we can say that th those those revolutions drove the kind of interest in philosophical libertarianism in a place like you know the English University or the British University, I'm not sure. That really hard case to make out. But clearly, you're, you're right that these things happened in the same period. So I want to get to like how rights is going to correlate with all of this story. All right. Let, let, let me try one more narrative on you before we okay. get to that, which okay. is, would I be right in saying that, that a lot of the sort of narratives you've given thus far have been quite materialist in the sense that they, they start with sort of underlying economic causes and structures and institutions and then sort of look at the modes of thought that arise from them? Do you think about your thought that way? Not really. I, no? I, okay. I, I try to be a moderate, um, so not to think just intra-philosophically, mm. but also... Um, I'm not a Marxist and don't really try to give priority to the material, although it has its place. I do think um, we need much more thought about kind of the mid-range ideological um, spirit of different times and mm. the way it relates to material uh, factors. 
Um, and often my interest is in connecting high philo philosophy to more kind of ideological presumption. And the truth, you know, the really interesting thing is that um, I find is that if you're looking for a kind of canonical defender of the, that welfare arrangement that we've spent most of the time discussing, it's actually hard to single one out. And um, if we think about great, you know, philosophers of the 1950s and 60s, they either weren't talking about politics at all, very famously, um, in Oxford, you know, where at, at the pinnacle of all of this, or were um, Cold War liberals who kind of presumed the justice of the welfare state, but spent most of their time defending um, what looked like more or less libertarian positions in retrospect, like mm. Isaiah Berlin. Um, I, I almost would read Isaiah Berlin as part of retrospectively or retroactively as part of the libertarian tradition. I think the work he does with positive and negative freedom, whether he meant it or not or foresaw this or not, yeah. those yes. arguments are going to be picked up by libertarians a generation I, later, I, again, knowingly I, or not. I, I would I think there's an interesting contrast to draw between Berlin and Green in this regard. We, we know that Green could assume a, a kind of ambient British libertarianism, and he just wanted to push back on it slightly. Um, but he he didn't defend rights or freedom because he just took them to be so 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 such a matter of course. And you might make the opposite case about Berlin that he's very concerned about external forms of unfreedom. Uh, at, at a time where Britain can rest on its laurels as a, a kind of perfect liberal welfare state. Uh, and so he, 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 he makes some short-term emphases that prove to be very useful in the long run to a much more kind of hardcore libertarian position. I would completely agree with that. Now, the, the reason I asked about sort of materialism versus idealism, and I'm sorry if that was a, um, a caricature of where you're coming from, is just that the narrative I'm about to give you is much more, not just on the idealist side, but almost on the great man of, men of history side, in that um, I don't think that it's like philosophers write stuff, people get it, and then they do it. What's it, Keynes said, the ideas of economists and political philosophers are more powerful than is commonly understood. I do just sometimes wonder if there is a, quite a big role of just human agency in this. And I'm thinking of Hayek in particular. Is I forget where it is, but he writes the socialists of an earlier generation were just really good at it. They were really good organisers. They were really good at getting within power structures. They were really good communicators. And he's quite open. He's like, I want to be like that. I want to get the approval of the elites. I want to make this thing competitive. And I almost just wonder if, like, through whatever process, or even just like historical dumb luck, you had people, not philosophers per se, but like political leaders, communicators, economists, you know, you know, running from the turn of the century through the interwar period and whatever, on the sort of socialist side, who were just like good, they were just operationally good at being ideologues, and then for whatever reason it had just reversed in the post-war period, and the sort of talent 
and the capacity, because say what you will about Hayek, that was someone who made his mark on history and clearly was effective at what he did, right? And we just sort of got outmatched. I sometimes wonder about that. I, look, I like that very much. I would say it, 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 is, it is largely true, but it's also a philosopher's story um, in the sense that um, it, it doesn't really matter what the deeper causation was um, for us to note some sea change. Now, I mean, the historians do care about ultimate causation, and there's a vast literature about this. But, you know, Hayek, after the road to serfdom, never had that big a, a public presence. Milton Friedman for sure did, um, especially in the United States, but not exclusively. And lots of historians have begun looking into um, advocacy groups like the Mont Pelerin Society, of which Friedman and Hayek were both charter members. Um, I would think that you know, when we look back and ask, you know, in the midst of, you know, coal mine strikes and the failure of labor governments and the dark years that immediately preceded Margaret Thatcher's election and ask people, I doubt many of them would say that they were influenced by Hayek and more would say that there, there's some concatenation of material factors and ideological change of which Hayek's a, a little part um, that, that lead to these big shifts. But in a sense, it doesn't matter very much because I'm content for, um, you know, more philosophical stories to orient us. I mean, they're true to whatever extent they're true and useful. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think, like, the proverbial man on the street was voting for Thatcher because of Hayek, but why the choice was structured for him in that way. You've got the Labour government, which is failing, and you'll you're likely to vote for an alternative, but the alternative didn't have to be libertarianism. You know, it could have been something else, but it, it was, True. and it's like, it's infiltrated. I mean, infiltrated is maybe a, a strong word. It's permeated power structures in a way by this point. I, I think that's, that's, that's accurate. Um, there's surely some story to tell of that kind. Um, so let's get back to your story then. Um, so we've set this up. There's been a retreat in both popular and to some extent philosophic liberalism. There's been this ascendancy um, within right-wing political parties of libertarianism. What? And at the same time as all of this, we're going to get a big rise in human rights as a discourse. Correct. Um, you know, I would just to argue that in the long run, we, you know, even more faithful was the rise of libertarian ideas within the parties of the left, especially the European left. I mean, in the form of the third way and so forth, Tony Blair and so forth. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I originally, I mean, I think all indications are that people suddenly start talking much more about human rights in the 1970s. And I originally kind of explained that in a kind of internationalist key by looking at the way in which socialism was seen to be failing, um, not so much as a distributive venture, as kind of as a spiritual option. Uh, actually, the founder, an Englishman uh, uh, of Amnesty International in the 1960s says very explicitly that people are giving up on Christianity and socialism is not going to replace it. And so what we need to do is give them something to believe in 
um, and that will be human rights of the suffering abroad. And uh, as as a Christian himself, he said, I, I don't really care if Amnesty International actually helps anyone because martyrs are meant to suffer. What I care about is all of the faithless who need something to, you know, do with themselves and believe in. Um, and more generally, in the 1970s, you have, um, you know, kind of socialism is crashing because of the Soviet Union is less and less plausible. Western, you know, Western kind of socialist parties are not doing very well. Um, and you have dissidents in East Eastern Europe who become very famous and um, helping them and so forth. So that I, I, I don't give up any of that old story that I told in that earlier book, The Last Utopia. But what I try to look at um, in the new book is the way in which this kind of human rights um, kind of fit, fit in this moment of switchover from the welfare state to the more libertarian or neoliberal age, because um, it's focused on normative individualism. Um, it's focused most often, especially in its mobilizational forms like Amnesty International on people's freedom um, very basic negative liberty, if you will. And in general, human rights for a long time abstained from comment on distributive justice. Uh, an older view would have been that freedom uh, depends on some modicum of fair distribution. Now human rights became associated with the idea that there are these high priority interests, or as Donald uh, Ronald Dworkin, sorry, called them Trumps, that are just more important than anything else. Um, and they gave, um, they, they, they fit in, I think, this shift to libertarianism in very disturbing ways. It's almost like, you know, we've talked about rights as like a language, like a discourse. It's not just like that discourse became dominant. It's like it was the phrase, like a linga franca. Like it's not yeah. like the only language people talk, but that's yeah. accepted as the language that you talk when you're communicating with foreigners. Correct. Absolutely. I think that's that's something that is certainly true. And um, you know, I began this research when I found polling in the 1970s when people said would would say things like, I had never heard of human rights until now, which just seemed so remarkable to me because when you and I grew up and came of age intellectually, it seemed as if there there really was no other normative language, especially for public purposes, available for framing claims about justice. Um, and to the extent that happened, I think you know, what well, we, we can talk about economic and social rights. It, it, I'm sure we should in a minute. But to the extent that happened, it, it raises this question of how we connect the rise of human rights with the victory of libertarianism, in fact. Well, one story you can tell is regardless of how it... Am I saying this right, Linga Franca? Like, international yeah. language, right? Um, one story you can say is regardless of how it became 
the linga franca or the ideological linga franca right in other yeah. words like if if um so I'm just even today this is true right like if i want to sort of um communicate something to a conservative i'm going to use a sort of right centric individualist negative liberty type frame so i remember i used to campaign for gay marriage and if i was trying to explain it to a conservative i'd never say anything like you know it's justice and people are oppressed and it's not fair right. i would say look we, we agree, right? We live in a capitalist economy and a regime of contracts, and we agree that if one human being wants to contract with another human being, they should yeah. be free to do that. And if necessary, it gets state sanction. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is people should be left to their own devices to pursue their own good. And that's actually quite a persuasive argument to conservatives. But I'm sort of just, I'm translating, right? Um, now, sorry, back to my original point. Um... If it becomes the lingua franca, one thing you can say is that languages aren't neutral. If French is the international language of trade and commerce and diplomacy, that has consequences. I mean, if nothing else, it advantages the French, right? Um, and then if English is, that sort of establishes a sort of Anglo-American centrality to world affairs and there's a similar thing with doing it with rights right is it prioritizes the individual it prioritizes um non-interference over um aid now that's not to say that you can't communicate welfare claims within the rights discourse you can it's just they don't roll off the tongue as easily. This being the lingua franca gives a sort of default playing field advantage to libertarianism, which doesn't explain its sustained presence in and of itself, but is surely part of the story. I think that's that's right. I mean, I, I you know, it, it, it's got there's got to be a kernel of truth there. I think I would push back slightly because it sounds like it's almost a Marxist account um, in in the sense that the, the Karl Marx's claim was that rights are inherently egoistic. They're framed around individuals and what they get. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that they have a libertarian, especially economically libertarian tilt. Um, and I guess I would say um, it doesn't what, what I try to show is that rights can thrive in different moral ecologies and they have no inbuilt tilt except the one given them by their ecology. Um, and I'm, I'm just not sure whether we should concede to Marx the idea that an, a, an individually framed normative entitlement is, um, has any, any you know, necessary relationship to libertarianism. Um, since after all, you know, if we take it seriously, any scheme of rights will lead to reciprocal duties uh, for others. And to the extent there, there are, you know, welfare rights, you know, we limit the right to property uh, and so forth. So it seems like the error would set in on which rights we rank more highly and which ones we defend against others, as well as against other claims. We may have lots of duties um, in a welfare system that don't correlate with anyone's individual right, or if we're environmental justice activists that don't correlate with someone's right to a clean environment or something like that. 
but that are are nonetheless very important and you know require limitation of other rights. So I guess I I I I generally want to agree with you, but for historians, I think there's going to be a very hard problem in saying too glibly that rights are just libertarian and therefore the problem solved in thinking that their rise would naturally lead to a libertarian society. Let me push back, push back then. Um, Certainly I'm not saying it's like a one-for-one correlation. We have rights as our language, then we get libertarianism. Um, It's more like the causation's the other way round. Like if France rules the world, we're probably all going to start speaking French, right? Yeah. Um, So what I would say is it's certainly true that rights have been used to express welfare claims. I'm just, you know, Bernie Sanders saying, well, healthcare is a right, springs just to mind as a contemporary example. It's also true that, again, I mentioned um, Cecile Farb. She builds out a system of quite radical, actually, demands um, on what we owe others as duties of, of, of welfare. And those duties that she says are just the other side of rights that she proclaims, right? Um, and in a way that I think is grounded and philosophically consistent, and I'll actually go one further, is I think if you try to proceed outwards from any coherent meta-ethical position on what rights are to a, found, you know, to a comprehensive moral worldview, you're never going to get something that centres property, in the way libertarians do. I think whether right. your account of rights is second-order utilitarian principles or a sort of protections of the fundamental interests of person, if you reason out from that, you don't end up with Ronald Reagan. Now, yeah. all of that said, I can't help noticing that in the broad sweep of human history, they tend to associate themselves, not as how they ought to be defined philosophically, but how they actually are in practice. They tend to associate themselves more with libertarianism than they do with progressivism, both in the rise of welfare states that we've discussed and in the rise of libertarianism, which we moved on to. And I think it's... It's not that the rights language causes libertarianism. It's that libertarianism is in a groove with it, and it's happy with it, and it's a linger franker that it's comfortable with, in a way that other claims are sometimes uneasy with, or more cautious about making. Um, but not that they can't, right. or that they don't. Um, right. Just that there is that sort of imbalance. Yeah. Uh, so th- that's that that sounds right to me. And, and what it tells us is that whether we explain it ideologically or materially, the kind of larger ecology of practices um, and beliefs at a certain time um, will condition, um, you know, w- w- what 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 rights um, are taken to mean, um, especially in a broader public. And. I, I completely agree that libertarian um, kind of practices in our world and neoliberalism and economics w- really required the um, obsolescence of socialism, but that they fit well enough with rights for the two of them to subsist in in some relationship to each other. That's actually that problem is the the problem I set out my book to kind of think about and get others to think about. So, you know, how exactly we come down in 
in stating our solution to the problem is, is, you know, a little bit immaterial because what, what I think is most important is that we agree that these larger ecologies for philosophical ideas are what matter. Hmm. How do we move forward then? So, you know, let's just quickly skip to the present in the, the last few minutes. Is yes. we now do have a resurgence. I think it's sometimes overstated and I think it's fragile yes. and I think it's uncertain to succeed. But we yeah. do have a resurgence of concerns about equality, and we do have, two, I mean, just to take the our current case, two candidates, Warren and Sanders, who are both talking explicitly outside of the sort of market-based tampering third-way liberalism that we've had since at least Clinton and Blair. Now, I don't know that they're the future of anything, honestly. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't. But how, it, it seems like, you know, th there's this new impetus that, no, we want to start talking about this stuff again. But Correct. if I do an ideological or meta-ethical breakdown of what they're saying, it's often kind of all over the place. There's not like a yeah. coherent, sustained discourse yet, um, which is sort of what needs to come, right? Correct. I, I think that's totally right. And, um, you know, w what is ironic is that you know, many people would want to say that Sanders's genius is to insist on more human rights, um, in particular, as you said, the right to health care. Um, and that may be the right way of putting it. Um, what, what I think is significant is these kinds of candidates are portending a new ecology. Uh, and, you know, w whether, whether how big a shift away from the centrality of rights it would involve is much less important than, you know, that it, it leave behind this, this libertarian set of ideas and practices that have been in command for so long. Um, I, you know, that's just one country. And, um, you know, we haven't talked about the, you know, the recent UK election, which in a very different direction. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I do agree with you that a lot's at stake in these very early glimmerings of a post-libertarian era. And of course, if you think it's it ought to be brought about, then it's incumbent on us as activists or philosophers to try to kind of push it. Yeah. In I, I just did like a solo episode where I looked at like the narratives that are emerging from the UK election. And I argued oh. that it's sort of a bit like a Rorschach test. People are just reading yeah. into it what they want to read into it. Like centrists are saying, See, this proves socialism will fail electorally, and the the socialists are sort of digging in their heels and saying it proves nothing of the kind. And my yeah. point is actually they're both flawed narratives, and in our lifetimes, both the hard left and the centre left have led their parties to defeat. And it's yeah. more complicated than that, essentially. I, I think that's right, and and it may be that we have to, you know, acknowledge that hard truth. Should uh, Warren or or especially Sanders get um, nominated because then we'd have a real you know there was a substantial american discourse about what the lessons of corbyn's disastrous uh, failures were for the american left and mm. of course some said there's not they're not it's not relevant and others said it proves that sanders would lose you know just as disastrously so there's a big test coming about 
which will also help us think about, you know, what's distinctive about the British case or was it part of a general phenomenon? Yeah, my my guess is mainly not. I think the fundamental challenge there was twofold. It was positioning yourself in a Brexit election in which you have an electoral coalition which is about two-thirds remain voters and about one-third leave voters. That is a tough circle to square. And then the second is just general incompetence. Like, I can say this now that he's on his way out. They just weren't very good, you know? that, that, That does matter. And unfortunately, as part of the ideological takeover of the party, they sort of purged or they walked out, you know, I think the blame's on both sides. The people who had any sort of, like, procedural knowledge or technocratic competence and, like, just, just like, basic stuff was not done well. And I think, like, just, you know, bread and butter stuff like that make, makes a bigger... Anyway, that's a whole other thing, but, like, that's sort of my take on that. That's right. I mean, the, the Democrats in the United States could fail in their own ways, but it, it, it would be different. And, of course, Brexit is, is, is not happening here so that whole you know morass is is uh, absent final final question then the book's called beyond human rights you sort of said it doesn't matter so much if the new discourse is grounded in human rights or finds a new expression do you have a that that it happens to you is the most important thing do you have a preference within that, or do you have a feeling as to what might be more effective? Uh, so, you know, w- 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 where I come down is looking back to, you know, the start period we started out talking uh, about it and and noting that the British welfare state did not require the exclusion of rights, maybe their demotion. Um, but some, like T.H. Marshall, formulated some of the highest aims, including the egalitarian aims of the British welfare state in, in rights terms. Um, and so, in a sense, it doesn't much matter to me. And, you know, call me a libertarian, but I think any plausible political ethic would would have to make room for some negative liberty in the mix. And, of course, someone like Green, long before the welfare state, although inspiring it, certainly thought so. Um, and so um, what I do think is that we're moving into a period in which we recognize more and more that um, very few rights are trumps. Uh, rather, they're, they're, they're statement of, of our highest social priorities. And even when they're priorities, they're limited in light of other values, including rights values. Um, And so what really matters is kind of thinking about um, the right mixture of rights and other things and how rights are going to be honored, but also limited, Um, and much less a kind of simple-minded devotion to rights as solving all of our ethical and political problems. What matters is the mixture of ethical imperatives, in the book, I make a big distinction between ethics that revolve around sufficient provision and ethics that are about egalitarian distribution. And, you know, all I want is to see what, however, you know, central rights are, is a better combination of those two ethical imperatives for a progressive future. Okay, awesome. Um, Listen, Professor, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for inviting me. 
Um, anywhere you'd like to direct our listeners? A webpage, Twitter, anything like that? I'm on Twitter. It's at Samuel Moyne, uh, and I'm pretty active, so I'd love to, you know, interact with your listeners that way. 